about 30 or 40 Titan missile silos. So these were, uh, you know, intermediate, uh, excuse me, intercontinental ballistic missiles, uh, nuclear tip missiles. And we didn't know exactly where they were, but we knew that they're in those mountains. And this also meant that the Soviets knew that they were in those mountains. And if there was going to be a nuclear war, Tucson was going to get a disproportionate share of, uh, of SS-18s launched at it. And so kind of grow up in a pretty happy home in a nice, uh, sunny, uh, uh, you know, Sunbelt City with the constant low-grade terror that any day could be our last day on Earth, right? Um, the other part where this matters, I mentioned Tucson being just an hour nor uh, north of Mexico, is there was a, a in the 1980s, a, a flood of refugees, steady flood of Central American refugees coming across the border, many of them displaced by Salvador and Guatemala at the time, uh, which the Reagan administration was playing a part in. And we come back to that uh, discussion. And so my my church was involved in helping resettle a number of these uh, refugees. And I, you know, was seeing some of the, the human costs, if you will, of this Cold War conflict. Uh, fast forward, uh, you know, 30 years later, and I, I write this book, uh, reassessing the Reagan administration foreign policy, and it's overall very favorable assessments. Um, and uh, it's not a hagiography, and if you do have a chance to read the book, you'll see I'm quite critical of some of the policies, but overall, it's a very favorable assessment. So what changed? Uh, I want to highlight three factors, uh, some of which relate to why I'm a fan of history and historical perspective, uh, but some also just a, a personal intellectual evolution. First of all, um, we know now how the story ended, right? We know now that the Cold War does end peacefully. The Berlin Wall comes down, the Iron Curtain comes down, the Soviet Union itself collapses, uh, the world is, is, spared, is spared nuclear war. And uh, that is uh, one reason why I think we sometimes need an entire generation to pass before we can properly do history is we need that critical distance. We need that removed from the time. So the way the world looked to me as a teenager in the 1980s and those acute nuclear fears and the, the, you know, the displacements from the Central American wars, uh, uh, you know, not at all to deny the very real fears and risks that were going on there, but we now can see how that broader story ended. Uh, and so I think that historical perspective, uh, that critical distance is, is one thing that goes, goes into the book. Um, another factor was uh, my own intervening time of you know, spending about, you know, 15 years or so, uh, primarily in Washington and some of overseas as a policymaker. And uh, working during that time as a policymaker, I came to appreciate more that in the policy world, there are very rarely good and easy choices to make. As I often tell my students, policymaking is not about uh, choosing between a bad option and a good option. If you're a good policymaker, just choose a good option. Rather, it's usually involves choosing between a bad option, a really bad option, and a terrible option. And your job is to pick the bad option, right? In terms of the the downside, the the, the downside risks, the costs, um, sometimes the unintended consequences, uh, those are unavoidable in the policy world. And so that uh, my experience as a policymaker, my own time working at the White House gave me a little bit more, what you might say, intellectual empathy for all previous presidents who have gone before, or prime ministers for that matter, any systems of government, and a different system of uh, trying to evaluate them based on what were the, 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 the choices that they faced at the time, what would uh, some of the downsides have been of other choices they, they might have done. Doesn't mean that all the choices they make are the best ones, often they're not, right? Um, but uh, give me a, a new appreciation for some of the very difficult trade-offs uh, that the Reagan administration faced. And then finally, um, 
there was uh, well, two other factors. One, uh, a lot of my international policy work in the in the 1990s and the early 2000s involved uh, uh, work with Central and Eastern European countries, uh, and uh, as well as some time in uh, in Russia itself, and talking to people who had lived under these communist regimes and hearing their take on the Reagan administration was by and large very favorable, saying, "Look, that president's." Uh, you know, spoke with more moral clarity about the governments, the, the oppressive communist dictatorships that we were living under. Uh, uh, we felt like finally there was a, a champion for our own cause, our plight out, outside. Um, and, and uh, you know, we're thankful to you Americans for having had him as president. This was a new perspective for me. Then finally, speaking as a scholar, um, especially a historian, and Mike had mentioned uh, all of the uh, the time I spent at the Reagan Library, which is where the uh, the records of the, the archival records of the Reagan administration are. And I spent a lot of time at the Library of Congress and elsewhere in all the different archives. And with the uh, turgid slowness of the declassification process in the United States, we sometimes have to wait about 30 years until a presidency is over before some of the most important National Security Council, CIA, State Department, Pentagon records are declassified. And those offer a very new window into the uh, the internal policymaking uh, processes, the deliberations, the, the mind of the president himself that were just not available at the time to journalists or to, to other, other observers. And so just as the wheel turns, nothing special about me. I was one of the first scholars who happened to be working on this at a time when there was uh, there were you know tens of thousands of pages of these new documents declassified. What kind of documents? Well, the transcripts of Reagan's meetings with other world leaders and heads of state, where we can now see what was he actually saying to them. Um, the uh, the internal National Security Council strategy memos that Reagan was uh, redrafting along with his staff, where you can see his thinking evolving. Uh, and again, you know, it was all highly classified at the time. Or things like his his diaries, which was just published about ten years ago, which he had never intended to be to be published, and and certainly weren't during during his lifetime. And so, the opening of all these archives, the declassification of these documents, now gives us a very new window into the internal policy process that the Reagan administration was was going through. And that's where it also, for me, gave you know a lot of new insights into what I now regard was a much more sophisticated and interesting and effective strategy in the Cold War and in the Asia Pacific and other key other key regions. Were you um, were you surprised uh, to find that through line in Ronald Reagan's thinking? I mean, the thesis of the book is compelling. And because of all the archival work, and the title tells the story well, Reagan wanted to win the Cold War peacefully. Yes, full stop. And he thought about how to do it, uh, and 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 studied with scholars, and really uh, was um, was basing it on not just a worldview, but but a considerable amount of sort of inquiry, study, discussion. Mm -hmm. Were you surprised to find that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I was, and and when I, I when I started the research on this book a little over ten years ago, um, at that point, my thinking had evolved to generally having a fairly favorable assessment of, of of Reagan, but still not much expertise or familiarity. So the, these are more instincts, and so I was still quite surprised as I delved into the research to see um, a number of the things that that you had mentioned. Uh, first, a uh, much more sophisticated strategy in his own mind for bringing the Cold War to a peaceful end uh, uh, and seeing the vulnerabilities in the Soviet Union much earlier than, than others did, uh, a very early on commitment to diplomacy uh, and to outreach to the Soviet Union, 
um, a very clear commitment to abolishing all nuclear weapons. You know, he's terrified of nuclear weapons. Um, uh, hence, you know, those are some of the themes on why I, I give the book the title The Peacemaker. It is not meant ironically. It's it's meant with all sincerity, and I think the record's pretty clear. Uh, by the way, I've gotten some criticism from some Reagan critics for the uh, for the book title. It comes from Mikhail Gorbachev, right? So Gorbachev uh, paid tribute to Reagan at Reagan's funeral, saying he was a great peacemaker. So um, so your complaint is not with me, it's with Gorbachev, all right? So if you don't, if you don't like the title of the book. Um, but... Uh, but uh, going going back to your question about some of Reagan's uh, Reagan's early thinking, um, I wrote the book as a chronological narrative. Okay, so it it unfolds uh, sequentially from 1981 to 1989. The idea there partly is to make it a little more readable, so so readers can can feel the story unfolding as it was for Reagan and his team. But there's also an argument embedded in writing it as a chronological narrative, which is I am trying to disabuse uh, readers and you know any of us in the 21st century of what I call the inevitability fallacy. This is the belief that we now have in hindsight, of course, the Soviet Union was going to collapse. Of course, that system was eventually going to uh, fall apart from its own contradictions and exhaustion. Of course, the world would not be destroyed in a nuclear war. That was, that was crazy to even think about that. Um, uh, and in hindsight, we can see you know some of the structural factors that do contribute to the peaceful end of the Cold War. But in writing the book as a narrative, I'm trying to show that very few people saw that at the time. And Reagan and his team certainly didn't know that it was going to end that way. And every day that they went into the White House or he went behind his desk in the Oval Office, he quite literally did not know if this was going to be his last day on planet Earth. And he also knew that some of the answer to that question, if the if it was going to be his last day on planet Earth, depended on choices he was going to be making and how the Soviets were going to be responding. And so trying to recapture some of that radical uncertainty and the tremendous pressures and stakes of policymaking. And uh, what most of the conventional wisdom, expert opinion at the time, uh, very much believed that the Soviet Union was strong and durable and resilient and it may not have had the most efficient dynamic economy in the world, but it, it had been around for 70, 75 years at that point and was going to continue for at least another century, right? That's what the American intelligence community largely believes. That's what most uh, academic Soviet specialists in the United States and Europe and Asia uh, also believed. Uh, and so for Reagan uh, to instead believe that the Soviet Union was much more vulnerable and fragile uh, uh, and, and potentially could actually be uh, defeated and collapsed, that was a very radical, controversial, and much criticized view at the time. And so for, for people today, uh, and, you know, including many of my academic colleagues who want to say, oh, you know, is this inevitable? Is all gonna, is all gonna fall apart? I say, okay, maybe it was, but nobody saw that at the time. And when Reagan actually believed that that was possible, he was viciously criticized as a, as a lunatic, as an imbecile, as a, a radical destabilizer of the of the status quo. Uh, and so, uh, for uh, you know, we can't have it both ways. It was inevitable this was all going to happen, but also he was uh, he was foolish to have have seen it. And so, what was that strategy? Just a couple of the the key points here. Um, it was a combination of uh, dramatically increased pressure on the Soviet system, economic pressure, military pressure, ideological pressure, political and diplomatic pressure, um, uh, but also the hand of outreach. Because again, uh, even though he wants to collapse the Soviet system, he also wants to keep the Cold War cold. And so while increasing that pressure, he hoped that it would induce the Soviets into constructive negotiations. And so he's also throughout his eight years as president, extending the hand of diplomacy uh, 
uh, and looking for that that off ramp to uh, to have dialogue about the uh, the differences between the systems to reduce uh, the the risk of nuclear war to slash the size of, of nuclear arsenals. Um, there's clearly some internal tension between the pressure and the outreach, right? And he has to uh, recalibrate those at, those at different times. But those two prongs are there uh, throughout his his eight years as president, uh, and they were they were very different from most previous presidents, Republicans or or or, Dem or Democrats. You, um, I'm sure, have seen the famous Saturday Night Live skit from the second Reagan term, um, which was when uh, President Reagan was mired in the Iran-Contra scandal, yeah. um, which, if you don't know it, was um, uh, almost like a novel, but, but transferring funds from um, various shady sources to get support for the Contras fighting against the communist regime in Nicaragua with arms sales to the Marines. It was all convoluted and nuts. And... Um, and President Reagan, you know, said he didn't he didn't know. So Saturday Night Live have this this hilarious skit where Ronald Reagan in front of the press is saying, "Well, and you know, that's my Reagan imitation." Yeah. Um, yeah. And this bumbling, sort of slightly senile, you know, affable fool who didn't know what's going on. And as soon as the press leaves the room, he jumps on the phone and starts speaking in fluent Mandarin and Arabic, you know, commanding the world stage. Your book sort of says that wasn't quite wrong. Yeah. <laughs> he was in yeah. command, but you still have this incredible. Contradiction. So the archival evidence is very, very compelling now that it's being declassified and made available. He had a strategy. It was deliberate. He thought it through. And yet it was a pretty dysfunctional administration in many ways. Al Haig, the Secretary of State, fighting with Dick Allen, the first of many national security advisors. I think yeah. the only one who changed more might have been Trump. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and um Weinberger and Schultz could barely talk to each other, Secretary of State and Defense. It was a very dysfunctional presidency. So how do you reconcile those two realities? Yeah, yeah. Um, his through line, his strategy, his deliberateness that you find, and then kind of his inability to herd cats in his own administration. Yeah. How does that happen? <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a it's a really interesting question. I I call it the um the paradox of organizational chaos and strategic success. Um and again, going back to writing the book as a narrative, uh I also do that to highlight all of this uh, uh administration infighting and leaking and backstabbing and an organizational uh, chaos because in the midst of these you know very big uh, uh, policy challenges he's facing and strategies he's trying to develop uh he has an incredibly fractious and divided uh, administration and he's a terrible manager uh he's personally uh conflict averse um he wants everyone to get along he uh, uh anytime his staff is fighting and leaking against each other which is all the time uh he refuses to enforce order or to confront the ones who are, who are out of line um uh, he's very uh, uh, reluctant to fire anybody. Uh, he just does not like that personal uh, personal conflict. And so uh, the way I try to somewhat reconcile these or at least ex explain all of it is, um, first of all, uh, his administration does have some uh, it's a real catastrophes. The Iran-Contra scandal is one. Uh, the 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 suicide bombing that kills 241 Beirut, uh, Marines in Beirut on the peacekeeping mission is another one. Those uh, policy catastrophes are largely a function of this management chaos, right? And we can, you know, in further Q&A, I can give you some of the details on all that. So it really does have some cost. However, 
on the big strategic priorities that Reagan really cared about, and I'll mention I'll mention two of them. One, of course, is his new strategy for uh, of combining pressure and outreach towards towards the Soviet Union. Another one way is his effort to transform the American strategic posture in the Asia Pacific, of uh, deepening America's ties with Japan, uh, recalibrating, pulling a little bit back from the initial partnership with China that Nixon and uh, uh, Kissinger and Ford and Carter had all continued. Um, um, uh, on those two big ones, uh, Reagan does exercise a stronger hand. Uh, he 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 is well informed on those uh, those issues. He's got a clear strategic vision, uh, and he will. And with both of those, he usually sides more with his Secretary of State George Shultz, who is more more in line with him, um, and he is more willing to make some of the hard choices or to become much more much more personally involved. Uh, and so that's how I try to uh, uh, you know reconcile this organizational chaos and some of the better outcomes, at least in those in those areas. Um, but I also say the disclaimer, you know, don't try this at home. There's no way to run a, uh, an office or a household, let alone a superpower. I wonder if in a Westminster system like Australia's, if a prime minister could survive or could have survived the Iran-Contra scandal, um, the Beirut bombing, um, and then the economic downturn uh, before the um, 84 election. I, you know, I suspect in the Australian system, there would have been, if not an election or no confidence vote, a spill where the prime minister's own party replaces them. So Reagan... Uh, was lucky he was in a federal presidential yeah. system and not and he a had the Westminster four-year system. initial term yeah. and survives that. And then you know, once you're reelected, you got the former, although he almost does get impeached over on Contra. So it does come close. Yeah. Um, the other um, uh, criticism of let us finish and we'll take, we'll take questions in a, when we're done. Thanks. Yeah. We'll, we'll bring people in in a minute. Um, so the other uh, criticism of Reagan or uh, attack on Reagan that you hear quite frequently um, is that he had Alzheimer's. And that that some at some point as president he was no longer uh, able to function as president. You went through his diaries, his notes on speech writing. What did you find? Yeah, so I I'm not a medical doctor, and I never met Ronald Reagan, let alone examined him. Okay, so the first big disclaimer there is I cannot give you you know the magisterial opinion on this, and I don't think anyone will ever know. That said, my uh, you know best uh, you know reasonably informed judgment is that his Alzheimer's did not manifest until he had left the White House okay um, and the evidence for that is that he had a number of medical checkups in the two or three years after he left the White House which found no evidence of anything like this um, and the, the first uh, <clears throat> real diagnosis of the Alzheimer's is not until 1994 so five years after he leaves the White House in 89 um, he does in his last two or three years as president, have a number of memory lapses, or you'll see these stories about he seems kind of you know dazed and confused in a particular meeting, or he's in an interview and he's and he's forgetting things and and uh, and stumbling around. Um, so what's going on there? I actually think this is a you know an Occam's razor example of the simplest explanation is is what it was. He was the oldest president in history at the time in the hardest job in the world, and he was tired. Uh, you know, I, I'm 50. I get tired and forget things sometimes. And I'm just a professor. I'm not in the hardest job in the world, right? He was 77 years old at the time, six or seven years into the presidency. Like I said, you know, the, the fate of the world uh, resting on his shoulders. Uh, and he was tired and stressed. And when you're tired and stressed and, uh, and of that age, you're going to forget things. Um, and so I think it was, uh, uh, it was really as, as straightforward as that. And road, um, regularly on horseback mm -hmm. when he was when he was shot by Hinckley um the doctor said his muscle mass stopped the bullet he was in such good oh, yeah. shape yeah Very and good um question. it is a bit of a sobering thought though because our 
Um, the current president is older. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. Since then, the United States, you don't need me to tell you this, has had two older presidents than Ronald Reagan. Donald Trump was older than him, and Joe Biden is older than both of them. So um, people just live longer and healthier for yeah. more now, right? Yeah. That's Fingers right. crossed. Yeah. Um, I want to turn to the present, but to do that transition, I want to ask you a bit about how to use history um, as a tool of statecraft and strategy and policy. You've thought about this and written about it. You did it in the White House, and you're on advisory committees now for the State Department on on this, on how to use history. So what are the, what, what's the right way to use history um, for contemporary stagecraft? What's the wrong way? Okay, yeah. Okay, uh, a lot there. I'll just um, uh, just give a, a few general observations and I'll even tie a couple of these to uh, some of the insights from the Reagan, Reagan administration too, but then some more, some more general ones. So, you know, the first disclaimer is um, history can be used very poorly and in a very distorted ways in policy. Uh, you know, so a classic one in the United States is, you know, anytime there's some uh, policy debate over whether the United States should, you know, send, uh, uh, take a stronger stance and send our troops overseas or not or something, the arguments come down to, is this another Vietnam or another Munich? Right. Um, and, and those are just, you know, wrenched out of context. And it's just, you know, argue, arguing over over bad analogies. I'm not saying there's nothing to be learned from Vietnam or from from Munich, but those are complicated. And they were also unique, unique moments. Um, rather, um, where I find the Reagan administration's use of history interesting, and then I'll, I'll pivot into you know, some of the more general general observations is um, uh, uh, is history as a repository of a certain set of values and a way to uh, sometimes cast a vision for the future. What do I mean by that? Reagan is a child of the Depression and World War II, right? So those are his formative years, the 1930s, Great Depression, and then, of course, the uh, the American entry, ent entry into, into World War II. And he would often refer back to those in his time as, 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 as president. Um, one, he would use the 1930s as a real cautionary tale against protectionism and isolationism. So he's very committed to American international leadership, international engagement. Uh, he's very committed to an open and free trading order. He faced tremendous pressures uh, from the, the American public in the 1980s uh, to be much more protectionist, especially towards Japan, also towards Taiwan, frankly, uh, and, and, and South Korea. And he was very resistant to that. And he would often appeal back to the 1930s saying, you know, we tried that in the 1930s. And it stymied our own economy, and it hurt the economies of a lot of the rest of the world, and it contributed to the rise of militarism in Japan and in, 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 in Germany, right? Then World War II, uh, for him, uh, a number of the takeaways there. One, that's where he gets his first commitment to allies, right? So he sees the importance of the American alliance in the war with the United Kingdom, our you know, partnership with China, um, to defeat totalitarianism. Uh, and he decides, he thinks that the United States is better with allies than, than without them. And that we had learned that, especially when we, speaking as American, are facing a totalitarian foe. Uh, then, of course, not Nazi Germany uh, and, and, and later in the Cold War, uh, so, so Soviet communism. He also, however, has some important takeaways from the end of World War II and an American policy after, after that. Um, uh, and he would often talk to Gorbachev about this, saying uh, one of the other takeaways for the United States in World War II is we are at our best as a country when we are turning our adversaries into friends. Uh, and of course, this was you know very it comes at you know tremendous cost in the case in case of Japan. But he said rather than trying to just you know turn Japan into an American colony or a 51st state or something like that, 
We wanted to help them rebuild, uh, become a market democracy, and become our most important ally in uh, in the, in the uh, in in Asia. Similarly, with with Germany, or in this case, it was West Germany, right? He would often say, "Look, you know, they are now our most, you know, one of our most important allies in in, in Europe after being one of our mortal enemies." Um, and he also would often talk about the importance of American self-restraint at the end of the war, that when we had, you know, in 1946, 50% of global GDP, a, an absolute nuclear monopoly being the only uh, nu nuclear, nuclear power in the world and, you know, troops stationed around the world. Uh, again, he said, uh, he said that there was a deliberate choice uh, in, instead of trying to be a new hegemonic empire, rather to help create a more collaborative international order to self-limit some of our own sovereignty with helping create the United Nations. And, and so on. So Reagan would often tell this story uh, to other heads of state on and saying, these are the principles I still believe in for America. And he would also often make these appeals in his speeches to the American people who were getting weary of four decades of the Cold War and wondering why we had to have this open trading order that allowed, uh, you know, you know, uh, uh, you know, goods uh, to be, you know, flooding our markets and hurting American jobs and so on, as some of the protectionist uh, protectionists would, uh, would would say. And then finally, with, with Gorbachev, when he's appealing uh, for uh, reducing nuclear arms and threat of war, he'd say, listen, you know, we've, we have a track record of showing some historical restraint here. So those are some ways that I think we're, we're a more judicious use of, use of history. A few others to toss off, not too much related to the Reagan administration. History is a laboratory for policy experimentation, right? And so anytime policymakers... In the in the contemporary moment, are wrestling with a, a new challenge. You know, North, North Korea's uh, a nu nuclear program, Russia's an invasion uh, uh, of Ukraine. You know, the challenge of a, a rising and and certainly a, a, a sort of a sort of China. Uh, when policymakers are sitting around, you know, the White House Situation Room uh, table or um, or you know the comp comparable ones in other foreign ministries. They will, their minds are going to start going, what policies have we tried in other contexts in the past and what worked and what didn't? Not so much analogizing, like I said, like avoid another Vietnam, but rather just what policies, what, what policy instruments are available uh, to us. And so history is a, a laboratory for policy experimentation. And finally, uh, you know, Finally, many other things I should say. Um, history helps give a it helps uh, disabuse countries of their own narcissism and give them a window into how other countries and other leaders might be seeing the world. Right. So um, uh, the United States would do well to pay attention to China's history if we're trying to figure out the, the new challenge from China. Paying attention to Russian history to understand how how Putin sees the world. I'm not an apologist for Putin, right? But we at least need to understand uh, his his own use of history if we're going to in turn be um, trying to marshal effective policies. So. When we were in the White House, you were the only historian, PhD. Um, there were about four or five of us with PhDs in political science, Condi Rice, Victor Chami, Peter Fever. All, all the political scientists came out of that experience and wrote the next big book was in history because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. of what you said. And, you know, Reagan's, um, you know, ironclad, you know, commitment and, um, and interest in alliances um, was reciprocated. He was lucky in some ways because he was emphasizing alliances as the, the cornerstone of American strategy when Margaret Thatcher was prime minister of the UK, Makasone yeah. um, emerged in Japan, Mulroney in Canada, um, Helmut, Kohl. Helmut Kohl in Germany. Yeah. Um, my favorite um, place to sit when I would go to the State Department for meetings with Condoleezza Rice, which was Secretary of State, was the you know, they had the old Williamsburg G7 table, the original table where yeah. those leaders met with brass plates. And I would always sit down on the Nakasone seat. <laughs> yeah. Someone else would grab the, you know, Thatcher seat. Yeah. We didn't have a G20 yet, so there was no Bob Hawkey seat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, where he wasn't lucky was New Zealand, but that's mm -hmm. another story yeah. um, because that alliance was a casualty of the 1980s. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's a good caveat on how to use history, um, you know, pr prudently mm -hmm. in, in analyzing uh, foreign policy problems. But so let's use it. Okay. <laughs> let's take the Reagan book, the, the Cold War, and look at the, the geopolitical challenge we have with China. Mm -hmm. um, are we in a Cold War with mm -hmm. China? You know, would Reagan look at this and say, I know that I've seen that play. It's a Cold War. Yeah. I won't presume to speak for President Reagan. May he rest in peace. Um, but yeah, my own assessment is uh, we are in a new Cold War with China right now. Um, uh, I, you know, as we were talking earlier today, anytime I say that, then need to put out the disclaimer about the discontinuities or differences uh, between the first Cold War and the, and the new one now. Um, the levels of economic interdependence between China and the U.S., as well as China and other other countries in the in the Indo-Pacific, um, China does not have a comparable Warsaw Pact. Uh, the nuclear balance is is different. Uh, China is not uh, the Chinese Communist Party is not trying to promote uh, communist ideology globally in the same way that the Soviet Union uh, was. So um, there's not a perfect analogy, but insofar as this is a um, a competition a, uh, between uh, the United States and a nuclear-armed communist superpower on the Eurasian landmass. You know, right there, the, the the same structural factors. This has only happened two times in history. One was the first Cold War. The other one is the circumstances that we're in now. Uh, the fact that the competition is playing out with all elements of national power. Uh, you know, economically, diplomatically. Um, uh, ideationally, uh, and of course, the, the military balance, uh, and that it's happening globally, uh, you know, the contest for influence on, on every on every continent. Uh, and I do think the fact that uh, there is a pretty strong element of a, of a battle of ideas, like these are two, uh, you know, different views of uh, how a good society is organized and how the, the world, the international order should be organized as well. Um, uh, that was, I think, one of Reagan's insights into the, the Cold War itself of uh, privileging that, that competition of ideas. But also, so those are some of the continuities or parallels between, say, the conflictual aspects of this. But also it's important to be said that it's also cold, right, in terms of this is not a uh, direct force-on-force -force hot war military uh, conflict between the United States and China. And that same direct force-on-force uh, -force military conflict, thank God, never broke out between the United States and Soviet Union. Yes, there were localized uh, hot wars in the Cold War, Vietnam, Korea, right? Um, uh, but it never uh, came to the point of a hot war between the United States and Soviet Union. Uh, but rather, it was, uh, it was like I said, that uh, decades-long competition. Uh, and I think that's also an important principle to bear in mind uh, between the UN United States and, and China. Um, uh, you know, I do favor at least some pages from the broader uh, Reagan uh, playbook of uh, maintaining, uh, for that, speaking as an American, uh, obviously here in the um, uh, the premier city of one of our most important allies, uh, Australia, of uh, uh, maintaining uh, our commitment to our allies. I think that's a, a source of asymmetric advantage the United States has, uh, which which China uh, China does not have. You know, the same level of uh, you know mutual commitments and allies there. Um, uh, being confident in some of our our, our own our own values. Um, uh, I think uh, as a matter of deterrence, the United States does need to uh, increase its uh, its military posture. Uh, but at the same time, 
uh, keep the channels of communication open, keep the channels of dialogue open, uh, look for some of those diplomatic off-ramps, uh, make clear that there's a, certainly a, a willingness to engage in uh, the diplomacy part too, uh, to, you know, to manage the tensions and maybe even look for some sort of, uh, some sort of peaceful settlement. So those would be some of the uh, analogies or continuities I'd find between the first Cold War and, and this current one that we're in. When, let us, we'll finish, and then we'll open up to the audience. We'll have a section of this when you can, you can jump in, uh, but not before. <laughs> what did, what did, what was, anyway, it, what didn't Reagan one day say, I paid for this I, microphone? I that in the New Hampshire primary. Yeah. The New I'm, Hampshire paying primary. I'm paying for this microphone, so. Um, uh, but you get your chance, just like the New Hampshire primary. Um, so, you know, uh, you'll probably lose your license to practice history if you actually answer this, but, um, okay. The WWRRD, what would Ronald Reagan do question? Yeah. You know, he was, he was, he famously was asked, um, how does the Cold War end? And he said, simple, we win, they lose. Um, which if you apply to the current circumstances would mean the end of the Chinese Communist Party. And there are Republicans, uh, for sure, um, and some Democrats who talk about the competition in those terms. Mm -hmm. It's it's a competition with the Chinese Communist Party. When they're gone, we'll all be safe. Mm -hmm. um, that's not how the Biden administration articulates it, but um uh, is that an apt uh, uh, lesson? Yeah, so I've been I've been wrestling with that one. I will say I would uh, I would not lament if the Chinese Communist Party lost its monopoly in power, right? Uh, so I think uh, I'm, I think it's been a, a you know, overall a very very destructive uh, dest uh, government. I I believe in um, in you know at least the the possibilities and the benefits of uh, of pluralism of of self of self rule. Um, of 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 democracy, uh, and I would you know certainly hope that the people of China would have have that opportunity. Um, and maybe if the Chinese Communist Party wanted to be one of several political parties uh, competing for votes and support, then that could that could be welcome. So it's not necessarily the abolition of them, but certainly the end of their uh, uh, their their monop monopoly and power. And I think I think the. Uh, Thriving and vibrant uh, democracy that we've seen on Taiwan gives the lie to the notion that the Chinese people, uh, as a you know cultural or ethnic matter, are incapable of governing themselves. I, I, I reject that. Um, but as a geopolitical matter, is that necessary for the um, uh, you know the the resolution of the new Cold War that I'm suggesting that the United States and China are in? I don't. I don't think so. Um, I think that there could certainly be, at least in theory, uh, the possibility of of some sort of uh, entente where you know uh, China would, uh, you know, agree to uh, reform some of its more aggressive international behavior. Um, uh, you know, such as militarizing the the South China Sea and you know disrupting some of the uh, some of what has been a peaceful and open maritime order. Um, uh, I don't know if they could reverse their strangling of Hong Kong democracy, but I, I would want to want to see that. I, I see that as an example again of some of this uh, 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 outside outside aggression. But um, uh, it's not a perfect analogy at all. But in the case of Vietnam, there still is one party communist rule there. But Vietnam is certainly not an adversary of the United States, and so that that by itself does not mean it's going to be adversarial. And there's possibilities for for cooperation. So. The, as John Lewis Gaddis writes in his famous Strategies of Containment, mm -hmm. um, th there were multiple strategies to contain the Soviet Union, but they were all essentially defensive. Yeah. Um, and it was Reagan who, with an early National Security Council strategy document, said, "We are in a sense, in effect, going on the offense." Yeah. Yeah. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna transform. Yeah. Uh, the international yeah. system. Um, and, and that's and not where the a, Biden administration is. No, I don't think that's where the, the, the majority consensus is in the Congress. True. It's still that we're going to defend the order yeah. against the challenges. Um, 
Uh, wonder if Reagan were alive today, if he would say, you might as well get to the hard part now, or if he'd say, no, that's quite right. China is very, very different. Yeah, and that's where I, I honestly China don't know. You lose your historian's license. Too. Yeah, no, yeah, because just thinking about timing, right? Um, when Reagan becomes president, the the Cold War, the Soviet Union had been in existence for uh, you know seventy three years, uh, and the Cold War had been going for you know at least you know thirty five years, right? And so uh, the the conflict had already gone through several phases, and um, he was certainly seeing uh, uh, you know more vulnerability among the Soviets than I think the CCP necessarily has, um, and so. I'm not making this exact analogy, but if one were to just try to map, you know, one conflict uh, or competition onto the other, the current moment would be more like the, the earlier mid 1950s, you know, kind of much, much earlier in it, um, when, you know, when Eisenhower rightly rejected rollback because that just, you know, the, the, the timing was not right. So some of Reagan's strategic uh, acuity, I think, was from recognizing it is now time to move from that containment and management framework to now more of a more of a rollback one. That said, I'm just going to put this out here as a, a provocation. I'm not uh, making any normative claims here, um, and this will not earn me any return visits to Beijing, but I'm not so welcome there these days anyway. Um, the Soviet Union came into existence in 1917, and the Soviet Union ceased to exist in 1991. That's a lifespan of 74 years. The People's Republic of China came into existence in 1949. We are now in the year 2023. That is 74 years later. Uh, Xi Jinping, of course, has studied the collapse of the Soviet Union as a cautionary tale, going back to this thing about learning, learning from history. I do not put that out there. No, you do not misunderstand. In Bowdoin did not just sit here and predict that in the next six months, the CCP is going to collapse. Okay, um, But I do put that out there as a reminder that uh, a system may appear strong and durable and almost inevitable, uh, and it will be that until it's not. Uh, and what that timeline is for the Chinese Communist Party or American democracy or anything else, right? I mean, nothing lasts, lasts for, forever. I don't exactly know, but past performance does not guarantee future results. Susan Shirk, the um, well-regarded China scholar in the United States, who's my guest on Asia Chessboard, my podcast this week, um, in her book, Overreach, um, picks 2006 as the year that uh, China began to turn in a far more... Um, you know, competitive mm. and ambitious and aggressive direction yeah. for a variety of reasons. So that's about yeah. the 1950s, 1960 in the Cold War context in terms of in terms of the rest of the world sort of figuring out what to do. Yeah. All right. Last important to note that that was before Xi Jinping. That was under yeah. Hu Jintao. Yeah. So last uh, uh, application of history to the contemporary world, and then we'll open it up. I promise. Mm. Um, Ronald Reagan was considered dangerous even within the Republican Party. Uh, my mom is a Republican. I remember her being very nervous about Reagan. Uh, when, because she was a big Gerald Ford supporter. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and probably he was the most conservative and ideological candidates other than Barry Goldwater. Oh, yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. So certainly more than Nixon, certainly more than Eisenhower. Yeah. And yet he pulled together a coalition that included the, the religious right, um, that included um, the moderate uh, sort of Republicans like my mom, that included Democrats, mm -hmm. the famous Reagan Democrats. Yeah. Um, he won by adding, not by subtracting. Yeah. Is is it possible today in the Republican Party? Is there a is there a, a possibility the current Republican Party, given all the structural changes, um, can produce another Reagan who can build that kind of coalition and a foreign policy? You know, that maybe not the same, but is that internationalist foreign policy? <clears throat> I I hope so. Right now, this is more a uh, you know wish than prediction necessarily, um, but just in terms of uh, 
you know, wanting to see a, a political formula that, that actually works. Um, Reagan's vision of a more uh, hopeful, optimistic, unifying tone of you know, politics by addition rather than uh, subtraction of trying to unite both the Republican Party, which was deeply divided uh, uh, when he when he ran and, and became president, and he had you know many detractors there. This is why he picks George H. W. Bush as his vice president. They had been rivals before; they had no friendship before. Bush represented the moderate northeastern wing of the party. Reagan, the more uh, you know in, insurgent uh, cons movement. Cons conservative Southern and Western wing. And, uh, and Reagan wanted to unite the party. So he said, I'm going to, you know, bring in as my vice president, the exemplar of that other wing that hates me, that has been trying to defeat me. Right. Um, uh, so that, uh, but then also he did not just want to unite Republicans. He really did want to unite uh, the, the rest of the country as well. Um, and so he would, uh, you know, criticize the ideas of his political opponents, but he's very careful never to engage in ad hominems. Uh, this is why uh, in 1984, he sets records that still stand uh, for a landslide victory of, you know, something like 60% of the popular vote and winning, you know, 49 states, um, right? Uh, that was, so these were many Americans who were not, there was a lot of independents and Democrats who, who were who were voting for him. Um, and uh, I think that was a function of a, a few things. One, uh, most voters are not terribly ideological. Most voters are going to vote depending on if they feel like their lives are getting better and whatever policies uh, they're, they're living under are working. And by 1984, uh, Reagan's policies seemed to most Americans to be working. Uh, they, they were getting better jobs. Um, uh, crime, crime was going down. They were feeling more hope and optimism about, about the future. And they were feeling a little more safe and secure in the Cold War, uh, too. The, you know, foreign policy was, uh, was, cer was cer certainly there. Um, but there also was a pragmatism of him, right? So he would have his kid, uh, convictions, but he was also very willing to, to cut deals with, with, with Democrats, with other moderate Republicans. He's, you know, constantly wheeling and dealing with, uh, with Congress. Uh, he also was, you know, compromising and making deals with, uh, with Mikhail Gorbachev as, as well. Um, and so, and he would often say, you know, I don't want to, um, if I can get, uh, 80% of what I'm hoping for, whether it's a tax policy or nuclear arms reduction, uh, I'm going to take that. I'm not going to hold out for the final 20% and then, and then lose it all. He would say, are you going to go flying over the cliff on, on some sort of uh, uh, you know, ideological crusade because I, I can't get that. And so that... Um, that 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 was a rare gift of having that combination of uh, of uh, principle and conviction, but also pragmatism and being willing to cut a deal. Um, I don't see uh, any particular figures right now in the Republican Party who are galvanizing a lot of this. Um, some would have the potential to. You and I both have admiration for Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, who's who's running for uh, run, running for president right now. He's certainly got some of these more Reagan-esque tones, which I appreciate. Um, you know, Glenn Youngkin, the Virginia governor who may run for president, would potentially have, uh, 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 you know, a path to, to embrace this particular model. I like to think that a critical mass of the American people would would respond well to this. Um, but uh, the last few years of American politics uh, uh, have disproven that thus far. So, um, yeah. And you put it on the book, Reagan used to be a Democrat and he yeah. headed a trade union, the yeah. Actors Guild. So yeah. he knew how to speak to the other side. Yeah. 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 And, and had not fully rejected, he had not completely rejected a lot of those values either. Um, so. The next president who used to be a Democrat was Donald Trump. Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> and Trump got the Reagan Democrats. Yeah. Uh, completely different worldview, personality, um, and likely um, uh, position in history. But yeah. Um, yeah. he was able to do it. 
And Trump always hated Reagan. Uh, there's a little vignette in my book in 1987 when Reagan is president and Donald Trump is just this kind of flamboyant, uh, you know, occasionally bankrupt New York real estate developer. Uh, Trump takes out uh, full page ads in the New York Times and Washington Post uh, lambasting Reagan's foreign policy, saying he, he he detests Reagan's open trade, he detests Reagan's commitment to allies. Uh, he thinks that you know Reagan is being played like by by us as a sucker by making America look weak in the rest of the world and so on and so forth. Um, Reagan pays no mind to this, um, but uh, uh, but it was something of a foretaste of the you know uh, what what President Trump would later become. All right, now I will open it up, please. Um, you've been patient, sir. Yes. Um, right here. Okay. Wait and for the mic if you could. Forward. I understand that the, you know, finding the accountant in history and trying to draw lessons. Did you give me a word here of a, 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 a sort of like a fundamental that runs through um, uh, in, 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 in the use of history? Mm -hmm. Is there a sort of a consistent one rule? That's question one. Question two, I'm not just going to come out right. In terms of using parallels, the American reaction to an enemy increasing its influence on an island off its shore, Cuba, mm -hmm. and its is there a parallel or even perhaps a justification in China responding to a perceived enemy increasing influence on an island off its shore? Oh, uh, and just to clarify on the Cuba one, are you referring particularly to the Cuban Missile Crisis in 62, or more just the general that, that for several decades there's been a uh, communist regime there? Okay, so, yeah. Um, so on the, on the first one, a general theory of history. Boy, there are a lot there. I will say that um, usually I think the most um, insightful and responsible uses of history uh, reject a a grand theory, right? So reject, say, a, a you know a Marxian historical dialectic, uh, or uh, or some other ideological belief in a particular engine of history, and rather treat history as more of a um, uh, a a broad tableau of the human experience, if you will. I don't know. I don't want to sound too ethereal here, right? But uh, as more revealing of, of complexities and ranges of possibilities, sometimes cycles, sometimes there will be, will be cycles. I, uh, again, I'm, I'm a, a little leery of too much of a rigid embrace of a cyclical view of history. Okay. Uh, Cause I don't believe in uh, inevitabilities, but just to give you one example of where some historical cycles can be insightful, this gets back to what we were talking about before. Uh, I have found, and this is not completely unique to me, but there is about a roughly within Republican foreign policy debates, there's about a 20 to 30 year recurring cycle um, between uh, oscillating between internationalism and isolationism, right? So the 1900s, uh, early 1900s, Teddy Roosevelt um, and an earlier Henry Cabot Lodge, very committed as Republicans to American international leadership and engagement. Um, the 1920s and 30s is when the first uh, resurgence of Republican isolationism under uh, Harding and Coolidge come, come, comes along. Um, uh, then with Vandenberg in the 1940s, a return to internationalism, but then with Bob Taft in the 1950s and then squaring off against Eisenhower, isolation. Yeah, I can take this forward, right? Okay. So there, there's uh, some of these recurring uh, historical dynamics, but I, I don't want to get locked into that saying that there's therefore inevitably going to be this, this pattern. Okay. 
Cuba, uh, Cuba, and and uh, in Taiwan. Um, I guess a couple of the uh, differences I would see between uh, both both uh, both situations is. Uh, uh, one, uh, you know, Taiwan, uh, you know, think of the, the government, like I said, is, is democratic, and this uh, represents the self-determination of the 22 million, uh, you know, people living, living, on, living on the island, um, who I don't see any evidence of any, uh, you know, offensive or hostile intent that they pose towards, toward, towards the mainland. Um, uh, whereas in the, in the case of, uh, in the case of Cuba, uh, since the revolution in 1959, there has not been a free and fair election. So we don't really know whether this, uh, you know, one party police state uh, represents the, uh, the aspirations and, and preferences of the, of the Cuban people. Um, uh, okay. Yeah. 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 So an armed yeah. Taiwan would be as, you know, in, worrisome as an armed Cuba to the big power nearby at some point. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. Uh, I guess if the United States were to station offensive nuclear weapons in Taiwan, I could see that more threatening China. Yeah. So, yeah. Also, Cuba's one island. Yeah. Um, Taiwan, we're talking Taiwan, Japan, the Philippines, and even Australia in the island chain that uh, that's looking at this. But it is an interesting question. It gets back to Will's point about you need to understand the historical perspective yeah. of the other side. Yeah. Um, Stephen, can you wait for the mic? Sorry, we, we want the millions of people listening online to be able to hear your question. A mm -hmm. uh, very good question. Uh, in part, yes, but here I would want to elaborate that uh, you know the Reagan administration's you know successful policies in the Cold War, which I you know argue they were. Uh, benefited from every previous Cold War president, right? And I'll come back to the Nixon part in particular in, in the detente role. But um, Reagan's first foreign policy mentor in the 1960s was Dwight Eisenhower. Right? Um, I do a little vignette on that in the book. Uh, Reagan had a particular uh, reverence and appreciation for Harry Truman. Um, and Reagan had read NSC 68 closely and would often reverend, right? Um, uh, Reagan uh, benefited quite a bit, even though he had uh, run against and defeated Jimmy Carter. Reagan benefited from the beginnings of the uh, uh, military buildup that Carter had launched. He benefited from a number of covert actions that the Carter CIA had started. Uh, he benefited from Carter having concluded the treaties to return the Panama Canal to Panama, you know, things like that, right? Um, uh, uh, Nixon and, and detente. Um, I, uh, I think that detente was the right policy at the time. I think it represented uh, some real strategic genius on the part of Nixon and Kissinger. Uh, when you and I were talking earlier today, I was just finishing up a brief uh, tribute to Henry Kissinger who turns 100 on Saturday. And I say in there, it his accomplishments was helping to uh, reduce Cold War tensions and to recalibrate America's posture, uh, particularly toward, towards the Soviets. Um, 
Uh, and and out of detente, you get uh, you get SALT one. You get you know the first real meaningful arms control treaty between the United States and Soviet Union. Uh, you get a renewed commitment to uh, some crisis management channels, things like that. Um, so insofar as detente had uh, had you know prevented the world from being destroyed in nuclear war, uh, then Reagan certainly benefits from that. However, I also think that Reagan's critique of detente, which he really starts uh, unloading in 1976, uh, in in hindsight, I do think was uh, was prescient. And and the critique of it, you know, comes down to this: he appreciated that detente had been a, a temporary needed measure to reduce Cold War tensions. But he worried that it was becoming a permanent state of being where the United States was committed to a more conciliatory posture of reducing defense spending and you know not not supporting anti, you know anti-communist around the world, and the Soviet Union was continuing to build up and taking advantage of détente. He also worried that détente, um, uh, as a uh, diplomatic measure was uh, conceding the domination and oppression of the Soviet Union on the Warsaw Pact in perpetuity. And he said, look, you know, these are captive peoples, right? They did not choose to have these governments. Uh, and in the name of geopolitics, it is wrong for us to consign them to, uh, you know, the permanent oppression under, under the Soviet Union. Um, and uh, so, as he uh, once put it, he said, you know, by the late 70s, detente means losing as slowly as possible. And uh, and so that's why he was committed to reversing that. So uh, so I do think at the time he comes along, um, it was the right time to move beyond the detente framework. Both Nixon and Reagan um, were animated by were animated by the um, by the the principle that diplomacy has to be backed by by power. Yeah. Um, in Nixon and Kissinger's case, it was the China play mm -hmm. to which had a direct. Uh, role in pushing the Soviets to the negotiations for uh, what became detente. Yeah. And in Reagan's case, um, strengthening alliances, the military buildup, especially our naval and, and, and Star Wars, the, yeah. the, the SDI. Yeah. But the, and deploying the, so the, the means, they both, they both saw the means and ways to get to where they wanted to be the same. Yeah. And it's not the way that Jimmy Carter or Bill Clinton or Barack Obama saw it. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was a, hard-headed look at power. Yeah. The difference, of course, was Nixon and Kissinger were trying to get to a more sustainable equilibrium. Reagan wanted the Soviet Union to collapse. Yeah, yeah, Reagan wanted <laughs> I mean, that's a big, yeah. and it scared a lot of people, Oh, it including did. traditional Republicans, foreign policy thinkers like Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger. Right? Yeah, and Brent Scowcroft and others, yeah. But one more thing on, on Nixon and at the risk of you know self-promotion, if you do get a chance to read the book, I think you'll find this. Um, the Reagan-Nixon relationship is fascinating because they are fierce political rivals in the 60s and 70s. They're you know two of the dominant figures in Republican politics. They both come from impoverished, humble backgrounds in the Midwest. They both find new opportunities in, in California and reinvent themselves. Uh, but also they, uh, in the 60s and 70s, were fierce rivals, really hated each other. Once Reagan becomes president, Nixon becomes one of his most important informal advisors. Uh, you know, they talk regularly. Nixon regularly writes to him. Uh, after a few years, Reagan invites Nixon back to the White House. It's Nixon's first time in 12 years sitting foot in the White House after resigning in disgrace over, over Watergate. They don't always agree, but Reagan um, really comes to value uh, Nixon's advice on dealing with the Soviets. At one point, when Gorbachev was resisting doing another summit with uh, Reagan, Nixon travels to Moscow and sits down with Gorbachev. This is the summer of 86 and tells and says, listen, um, you this guy Reagan is really someone you can trust and work with. Uh, he is, uh, 
you know, the only one uh, as a, you know, just as Nixon was the only one who could go to China, he said Reagan is the only one who has enough of the conservative credentials to cut a real meaningful deal with you and sell it to Congress. Um, and that's what persuades Gorbachev to then do the the, um, the Reykjavik summit. So, so Nixon plays a really key role. Um, other questions? Yes, sir. And then I'll work my way to the left. You, get, you have to hold it a little close to your. And secondly, sort of far away from that, what would Vlad, what would Ronald Reagan made Vladimir Putin and his notion that uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union is the greatest tragedy of the, of the 20th century? How do you think might have handled it by not having theoretically? Yeah, there is a lot there. So, okay. Well, on the first one, um, uh, for those who didn't hear it, the question was part of Reagan's strategy to uh, to outspend the Soviet Union, especially on the military front. Absolutely, yeah. And Reagan was very explicit about that. Uh, he uh, he said he think he said the Soviets liked the arms race better when the, the when they were the only ones running in it. Um, and he would say, you know, I think you know, believing in the dynamism and prosperity of America's market economy, that if we start uh, putting substantially more resources into our military, it will lure the Soviets into an arms race that they just can't sustain. But um, so, and that's uh, a fairly widely held view. And I think that is tr true and accurate, but it's also incomplete. Reagan did not just intend his military modernization to outspend and outbuild the Soviets, he intended it to outsmart them. And, and this is where, remember, he had been the two-term governor of California in the 60s and 70s when Silicon Valley really first came into being, when it had its first boom. So he's a great believer in, um, in the free world, in the United States, technology, innovation, creativity. And so he um, is putting all this money not in just, to just um, buying more tanks and planes and bullets and bombs and so forth, but better ones. He's uh, putting money into the next generation of weapon systems that have a qualitative advantage over the Soviets' quantitative advantage. Um, and you know, if we had more time, I could walk you through all the details about tank killing platforms, uh, more uh, better quieting technology on our nuclear subs. Um, <clears throat> Uh, 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 um, uh, terrain hugging, uh, you know, B-1 bombers, uh, the, the stealth technology, uh, all of this, right? And and Gorbachev is fascinated by this and terrified by it because he and Gorbachev realizes no matter how many more rubles I throw at buying more T-72s or you know deploying more SS-18s, I can't keep pace with uh, the American technological advantage, and that's why the Strategic Defense Initiative is the is the apex of all that. So so yes, so there's more to the Reagan defense buildup, but partly it's outspending, but it's also just uh, like I said, outsmarting. On on Putin, well, Reagan would disagree that the collapse. The Soviet Union was a geopolitical catastrophe. He would say it was probably one of the greatest geopolitical events. Um, uh, I think, uh, I can't say for sure, but I think he'd find Putin an utterly loathsome character. Um, I think that we do know that the Reagan doctrine, which involved providing American weapons to 
other people who are fighting for their own freedom against Kremlin aggression, you know, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, uh, the UNITA rebels in Angola and elsewhere, uh, is exactly what the United States and our allies, including you know, Australia, are doing with supporting Ukraine right now, right? So, um, so I think Reagan would be uh, committed to that. But he would also you know, be mindful of, uh, of crisis management, of being cautious about an escalatory spiral. He wouldn't want to see this turn into a nuclear exchange. And so I, I would think and hope there'd be some efforts at keeping diplomatic channels open too. I suspect Reagan would have had a witticism like John McCain's, which I know you know, 20 years ago when President Bush said he met Putin and looked, into, looked in his eyes and saw his soul, John McCain said, I looked at Putin's eyes and I saw three letters, K, G, and B. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and of course, McCain was a huge, I mean, Ronald Reagan transformed his life. He was a Reagan Republican through and yeah, through. Yeah. I'm going to keep going this way. Um, yeah, Cam. Oh, sorry, you go ahead and then Cam. Yeah, it's just a matter of my one. Oh, sorry. No, no. I so I think I mean what what I hear in the question, which is an interesting question, is um, how much of the Ronald Reagan received to history is manufactured. Like, how do you? Well, can we go with the first part of the question, or at least what I heard in it, which I, I, the first part intrigued me, so I'm going to go with that, which, which, right. Right. So um, let, let's go with what I was hearing in the first part of the question, which is an interesting one, which is, uh, as a historian, for example, how do you, how do you deal with the Ronald Reagan or any other prominent political figure um, as they're received in history? This, this is a, political leader whose entire persona was generated by consulting groups. He was an actor. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a classic challenge of biographers. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. 
as an Asian scholar, uh, used to teach a class on Asian leaders, scholars had a really hard time explaining Ho Chi Minh because the, the Communist Party in Vietnam had created this whole mythology around him, and um, but no one could actually verify it, and it was received as, so as a historian, how do you sort of deal with that? Yeah, so this was, um, I will, uh, I will answer the question by dodging it a little bit. Okay, so bear bear with me here, right? So, um, and I think I see what you're getting at here too. You could let him finish. Yeah, yeah all right. So, um, so my book is a <clears throat> history of Reagan administration foreign policy, right? So notice what it isn't. It is not a biography of Ronald Reagan. It is not a, you know, birth to death, uh, it's not even a history of his whole presidency. It doesn't get into domestic policy or anything like that. Um, and I wrote it that way partly because I thought there was enough just of interesting things to say about the foreign policy, but also um, I did not think that I would, if I tried to do a biography, be fully able to get inside his head and understand him because no one really has. He's a very enigmatic pers uh, personality. Um, he's confounded many a biographer, partly because, uh, you know, there's many layers to him, partly because uh, he himself would not always be introspective. He had no close friends in life, right? Um, the one person he's close to is Nancy Reagan, his wife. Um, but uh, Reagan was the son of an abusive alcoholic father um, and grew up in a very uh, insecure, uh, traumatizing home with many moves. And so he never, uh, he, uh, in a lot of ways, he was very distrustful of other people and that he wouldn't really let them in. And yet he also had coped with that. And this is why he was a bad manager too, because he's so conflict averse. But he also had coped with that by adopting a more uh, sunny, optimistic, hopeful personality uh, and wanting to look on the, on the bright, brighter side of things. This is one reason why I think he succeeded somewhat in Hollywood um, is he's able to inhabit these different personas, as you were asking. And uh, I don't think it is a uh, a, a slight or smear on him to say that he brings uh, some of that actor's persona to the White House. Uh, well, yeah, not so much an illusion, but just appreciating the ceremonial roles of the office, um, the stagecraft as statecraft, right? Um, and this is not unique to the American presidency. I mean, every every political leader, have, you have to have some ways of connecting with the people and casting a broader vision for them and then inhabiting this, this particular role and yet realizing that the role you're in is larger than who you are a, a, as, as a person. Um, and so he, there's one reasonably good biography of him uh, titled President Reagan, subtitle, the role of a lifetime, right? And that's not, it's not meant to disparage him. It's saying that he appreciated the theatrical aspects of it. That's why he spends a lot of time on his speeches um, and on crafting the communications he wants to the American people. That's why he pays attention to the pageantry and imagery. Uh, so his iconic um, uh, D-Day anniversary address, the boys of Point du Hawk, he is standing there uh, atop the cliffs at Point du Hawk, looking out over, over Utah beach. Uh, when he says, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, he's standing at the Brandenburg Gate with the Berlin Wall behind him, right? Um, so connecting uh, the ideas and principles of his strategy to the imagery, uh, and in turn, trying to use that to mobilize public opinion, um, there is some of the imagery there. So that's a very good question. But your book is not a psychological biography of Ronald Reagan. It's, yeah. it's identifying the role of Ronald Reagan in the foreign policy of his presidency. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the strategy. conclusion is it's, it's far more significant than most historians uh, have yeah. recognized because yeah. of the archival things you found. Yeah. Cam.
Yeah. No, this, it's a very good question. And um, <clears throat> this is what I just made a passing reference to when I was talking about some of the dissimilarities is uh, the CCP today is not uh, sponsoring, you know, global insurgencies or revolutionary movements the way that Soviet Union was doing. Uh, so just to, you know, a little refresher here for us, which I had to be reminded myself in working on the book on what things look like. Um, so just between 1973 and 1980, just in that seven, eight year window, <clears throat> um, South Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Angola, Mozambique, South Yemen, Nicaragua, Grenada, Afghanistan, all fall to communism, all sponsored by the Soviet Union. Not, not entirely engineered by the Soviet Union, right? Um, we're not seeing you know, comparable moves now. And so the, the, the Reagan doctrine of supporting uh, you know, insurgencies against that, the Contras in Nicaragua, UNITA in Angola, and so on and so forth, is designed in part to uh, uh, you know, uh, support you know, people in those countries who don't want to live under communism, but also designed as a cost imposition strategy on the Kremlin itself. Okay, so uh, and the Kremlin was spending billions of dollars trying to you know prop up the uh, the Castro regime in Cuba, propping up the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, and so on and so forth. Reagan already sees that they're economically vulnerable, and he thinks, all right, if I can make it even more expensive for them through these proxy wars, but also especially in Afghanistan, it's not just about imposing financial costs, but we don't know the real the exact numbers, but probably something upwards of 50 or 60,000 Soviet soldiers are killed by American provide arms to the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. And that is um, very demoralizing to the, the, the Soviet, Soviet people. Uh, and in addition to the financial costs there. And so, uh, yeah, so in that sense, those proxy wars are a part of that broader cost imposition strategy. And there's not, you know, I don't see a comparable one going on right now with China except insofar as China's supporting Russia and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But that's kind of a you know triple bank shot, as Americans say. So, um, yeah, so I don't, I don't see any direct lessons there right, right right now. And in some ways, I hope we don't have to get into that either. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. I can say a little bit Uh, yeah, yeah, no, that yeah, that one that one could be could be more uh, more likely, um, or or similarly, maybe just uh, you know, kind of access to key uh, global trading choke points, you know, uh, you know, uh, Suez Canal, Malacca Straits, right. Um, and you know the American commitment over the last you know several decades has certainly been to helping you know underwrite an open and free maritime order, uh, preventing you know the domination of those by any hostile hostile powers. Um, uh, I uh, as far as purely on the resource question, I think the uh, you know when it, when it comes to say you know hydrocarbons or renewables, the United States you know particularly the shale boom in the last twenty years is 
uh, a little more self-sufficient than we were certainly in the 70s and 80s, right? Especially in the 70s, we were really vulnerable to that. Um, but so many of our allies and partners in the, you know, the globalized economic order that we're in certainly depends on, uh, you know, uh, secure, uh, reliable energy supplies. Uh, and, uh, and, if, and if China were to be, you know, uh, upping its mercantilism on those, that would be, yeah, that I could see some potential proxy conflicts there. So, um, but I'll, I'll need, that's very good. I want to give that some support thought. It's a very good question. Cam's question and your response about um, American arms used by the Mojahedin to kill Soviet paratroopers and soldiers prompted me to think, actually, so did Chinese arms. I mean, a lot of what the CIA did was get weapons from the PRC, yeah, um, small arms and mortars and artillery, which were also used. And Reagan's- We're, we're two, spending a billion dollars on buying them from China and then using Ch Chinese mules to, you know- Yeah, for them, so, and yeah. Um, both of Reagan's secretaries of state, Al Haig and George Schultz, had a pretty positive view of China. I mean, they were very different. The, I mean. Haig in the Kissinger tradition thought the future was with China and couldn't care at all about Japan or Australia or Korea, yeah. where Schultz was an allies first guy. Yeah. Um, you and I both interviewed him for books, very mm -hmm. pro-Japan, mm -hmm. but he was not anti-China. Schultz gave speeches yeah. that were pretty optimistic about the future of China. Mm -hmm. What did Reagan think of China? Yeah. I mean, it was a useful tool against the Soviets, but what did he, in your archival research, yeah. did you get a sense of his impression? He he really admired Japan. He liked Nakasone. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. So um, the, yeah. Um, he was but, an Anglophile, really liked Thatcher, but what did he think of China? Yeah. He was useful against the Soviets, but what did he really... Yeah. Reagan had some real affinities for China. He was not... Uh, uh, it, it's complicated, I mean, but I would say he's not anti-China, right? And is also his thinking evolved on China too. This is important to say. So, but, but first, I, uh, the the context is important. Um, uh, you know, through the 1970s, a succession of the three successive American presidents, Nixon, Ford, and then Carter, all decide that the future of Asia is with China, and they want they think that the key to American strategy in Asia is a, a China first strategy, right? And at the time, that was not an implausible thing to say. I don't want to sound too dismissive at all. I mean, the as you mentioned earlier, you know, kind of bringing China more into alignment with the U.S. to counter the Soviets was a geopolitical masterstroke and the right thing to do at the time, just as detente was the right thing to do uh, at, at the time. Um, but Reagan was very concerned that this came at a cost, uh, and two things in particular. One, he worried that uh, the embrace of China came too much at the expense of America's historic commitment to Taiwan. Um, and, uh, and second, he thought that it was a mistake to privilege China over Japan. And so when he first becomes president in his first two years, uh, and this is one of the sources of his tension with, uh, with Haig, his priority is to uh, first provide um, uh, uh, to do uh, elevate the importance of Japan as America's primary strategic partner in in Northeast Asia, um, and to transform that relationship from my primarily economic rivalry into primarily strategic partnership. Um, this is why his first trip to Asia he goes to uh, to Tokyo and Seoul and not to Beijing. All right. The other part of his his priority is to. Uh, provide uh, reassurances enough of a defense commitment to Taiwan that even though Taiwan no longer has diplomatic relations with the U.S., Taiwan will not be fully abandoned. And, and that's why he, he works hard. And then Schultz helps conclude the third uh, communique in, in 1982 of you know, continuing to provide a continued commitment to peaceful resolution of cross-strait differences and American arms for Taiwan to deter a Chinese attack. 
that context is important because after those settlements get done, after Nakasone comes to power in uh, November of 82, I think it is, um, and Reagan has a real partner with Japan after Taiwan now has the assurances of a continued American support, Reagan then turns back to China and says, let's forge a pragmatic, constructive partnership based on shared interests. Uh, and he travels to China in the spring of 1984. Uh, he is fascinated by the country. Uh, he has great affection for the people. He values the partnership with China in countering the Soviet Union. He knows that China is helpful in tying down like 60 or 70 Soviet divisions there. Uh, he assures Deng Xiaoping of his commitment to <clears throat> excuse me, getting rid of all of the Soviet SS-20s intermediate range nuclear missiles that were not just threatening Western Europe, but were also threatening Beijing, Tokyo, and Seoul, right? So there's a security commitment there. Um, uh, and he also expresses hope that China will continue its economic reforms and modernization. And he's very clear, he hopes that China will embrace democracy. Um, and if you read his uh, Fudan University speech or also his ad address to people in Beijing, he's very clear on this is the future hope that he has, that he has for China. Uh, you know, thus far, those part of the hope have, have not materialized. But meanwhile, he says, but we can work together on these areas of, of shared interest. So, so um, okay, let me uh, wrap up. Are you, are you? I, I would, yeah. So, um, uh, I, I really uh, hope you are intrigued enough by this discussion to read The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan in the White House uh, and the World. Um, it's, it, it was, I mean, I'm probably giving away a trade secret. It was, how, how many pages? Uh, uh, 608. It, so, was a, yeah. it was a thousand pages. And, I, I, and my editor made <laughs> me cut out 400 pages. So, so if it seems it, long, you should have seen the first verse. So we are hoping the U.S. Studies Center can get the director's cut <laughs> with all the juicy details about his relationship with Bob Hawking in Australia, which got <laughs> cut from the final version. Um, but it's really a, a both um, towering and authoritative book, but also a very readable book. I mean, it's not a biography, but it does read like a biography. You, you really care what happens um, to the story, and, and it's, it's really hard to put down um, and extremely well-researched. So um, we'll conclude now. People can, we'll turn the mics off. People